Well, Tyler and John and I are very excited to be offering this sermon series, uh, The Prodigal God. Think about the subtitle of that book as well, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. Wouldn't you love to recover the heart of the Christian faith or discover what an author means by that, recovering the heart of the Christian faith? Last week, Tyler spoke of this and simply got us started and spoke of that Jesus was speaking to two kinds of people in this parable of the prodigal son, as it's sometimes called. But we're going to repeatedly acknowledge it's the story of the prodigal God. And um, these two kinds of people were first um, a group that was, had gathered with Jesus who heard him gladly. And we would put them under the category of sinners, the immoral, liars, cheaters, adulterers, embezzlers, pornographers, gossipers, drunkards, drug abusers, whatever, all that stuff. Those taken over by greed for money or power, all that. That was one group that um, Jesus was, had as his audience on that day. And the other group were the Pharisees, the moral and religious people, the good ones. But what is amazing and fascinating to us in this journey we are going to make is to discover that uh, the target of the parable is not towards all of those sinners. That's not the primary target. The primary target, the bullseye, is being directed towards religious people. Not the immoral outsiders, but Jesus is especially speaking to the moral insiders. Those who come to church every Sunday. And what um, we will see in this story is an extended look and a penetrating look at the soul of the moral or the religious person. And we will begin to see as it's uncovered that, that Pharisees, these moral religious types, are blind to themselves. They are narrow and they are self-righteous people. Now think about that word self-righteous for a moment. I spent just a few minutes, as we all can do now, Googling uh, something as simple as the word self-righteous. And all these different kinds of meanings came up. Um, someone who is confident of their own righteousness. Smug, smugly moralistic. Um, intolerant. Intolerant of others' behaviors. Having or showing an exaggerated awareness of their own virtuousness. Acting as if one is morally superior to everyone else. A holier-than-thou attitude. That is that religious person. And what we will learn in this story as we make our way step-by-step through Lent and step-by-step through the chapters is that both the sinner and the Pharisee, the sinner and the moral person, is alienated from God. The sinners, obviously, by their sins, like the younger son. And strangely enough, the moral people alienated from God by their goodness and good deeds, which produces an attitude, an air of self-righteousness, of arrogance, and intolerance about others who can't be as perfect as they are, you might say. So what we will learn is that religiosity, religious moralism, is a particularly 
deadly spiritual condition. Now that was last week, in some way, that overview of these two types of people who are listening to Jesus on that occasion when he tells the, por- the parable. This morning, as we looked, uh, we'll look at uh, the two sons, just as we looked at the two kinds of people a week ago. We've got the lost younger son, right? And we have the lost elder brother, the elder son. This is the story of two lost sons. The younger, we know it so well. He says, Dad, I want all this stuff that you've got. Don't really want you. Don't want to enjoy any relationship with you. I just want the stuff that you provide. And then we see the graciousness and the generosity of the father who divides the inheritance prematurely because he is not deceased. And he gives the son the third of the estate. And we know as it goes that he takes that, sells it, takes all the money, squanders everything in loose and wild living that we are left to our imagination what it looked like. And then there's that operative phrase that some believe is inauthentic, but I believe is authentic. It says in Scripture that he came to his senses. When he came to his senses, he prepared to go back to the Father in penitence and basically say, I'm sorry, I, I really messed up. I don't deserve to come back into the family but if I can work as a hired hand, maybe I can pay back some of what I have cost you and cost the estate and cost the family. And so he's prepared to do all that. And uh, the father sees him coming home and they meet in the roadway because the father is so excited and so full of love and ex- uh, joy. And he runs out to the younger son. And before the son can even finish his planned speech, the father says, just brushes all that aside and says, quick. The robe, the ring, the shoes, put them all on him. He's family. Bring him in. One commentator says of this event that the father is saying, I will cover your nakedness, the robe, your poverty, the ring, and your rags with the robes of my office and honor and love. He kills the fatted calf, which as we know, sends the elder son, the elder brother, into a tailspin. But it is saying there's abundant food, and just as there is abundant food in my home, there is abundant grace to spare for everyone. Well, for this younger son, it's obvious the self-destructive pattern he chose. And we've seen it because we've done it ourselves, or we've seen somebody whom we love and care about a great deal do it to themselves. And we see that it does end in a, in a pit in some sort of pigsty of, of um, everything lost. But the point, the focus of the story is not so much towards the sinners who are listening or not so much about the younger son. The point of the story is towards these religious ones, the ones who would gather under this roof on a Sunday or every Sunday. And he says to this person, the pattern you have is much more destructive It's more complicated, it's more poisonous, and it is harder to see. It's harder to have self-awareness about this. George Buttrick, an early 20th century commentator, um, famous for his preaching from New York City, uh, Presbyterian, 
uh, described this elder son as an ungrateful elder son, a self-righteous elder son, and a loveless elder son. Ungrateful because he is forgetting that most of his good good fortune was simply by gift, just by his being born into this family and being born eldest. He didn't get it by merit and ungrateful for what he has received as gift. And self-righteous, he sees no need for his own spiritual self-improvement. And loveless, zero, not a sympathy for others. And really rather a coldness and a cruelty, even toward his own blood kin. As we see in this second chapter, if you've begun to read the book that we are reading, that what he is essentially saying also, I want your stuff, Dad, just like the younger son said it, but nothing to do with you. I've earned them. I deserve them. I will have them. They are mine. And you dare to give some of it to your other son. This one also disgraces his father. He remains outside the door, remains outside the family, casting a public vote and an embarrassing vote of no confidence in his father's decisions and actions. He seems to be especially upset about the cost Money so often figures into upsetness and alienation in families. There's such an ugliness in this. He can't even address his father properly. He just says, look, look you, talking to his dad, the patriarch of his family. And cannot even describe this relative who is as close to him as his only brother, except as this son of yours, disowning him. And the father is trying to say, son, swallow your pride. Come to the feast. It's a great day. He's back. The father pleads with him. Pleads out of his love to show love. And appears to be to no avail. We know the story ends suddenly there. I want to share with you this morning a voice from 45 years ago, 1966, who speaks to the condition of the elder son. It's 1966 in Cleveland, Ohio. This is Gert Bahanna, whom I have raised up as one of my really heroes, uh, this peculiar, odd woman evangelist of the Episcopal Church of the 50s and 60s, rescued literally from the gutters of alcoholism, um, having squandered everything out of the most privileged of upper-class families of New England, Lost it all until she met Jesus. Hear this um, part of her testimony on this old tape from another day. When I was 14, since I had graduated from the sins of the flesh to the marriage of Christians, then, I found myself more difficult than the sins of the flesh. If you commit adultery, you're actually know. If you steal from somebody, that's annoyed. If all that time you think don't you know it, somebody's always trying to tell you. But I know I graduated to oh hair spreading maxis and an obscenity bird. Things like dirt, are you by any chance getting proud of not being proud? 
It is Dinette that we did. I find out a few years ago that I'm not the most revolting of all things. I am a snob. I am a snob about snobs. I look down on people who look down on people. <laughs> I look down on white people who look down on black people, but I also look down on white brown people who look down on black people. So I'm in quite a bind. So I have two questions that I ask myself over and over and over every day of my life, and neither question has anything to do with good, bad things, good things, minor or low times. The first question is this. How are you doing with Jesus Christ? Are you doing with him, old gal? What's the score? The second question is, is this for God? Or is this for church? If it's for God, we try to do it. If it's for church, we try not to do it. If we don't know, that's most of the time we just do what we do know and wait. I will close now with a prayer I always close with. Don't bow your heads. This is the prayer of a long dead friend. Oh Lord, I ain't what I want to be. Oh Lord, I ain't what I want to be. Oh Lord, I ain't what I'm going to be. But thanks, Lord, I ain't what I used to be. Amen. Thank you. So Gert knows the story of the younger son. She's been that younger son. But she also knows the life of the elder son that she had to deliver herself from as well. Gert, are you by any chance getting proud of not being proud? Boy, that's a tricky one, isn't it? And I am a snob, she confessed. I am a snob about snobs. I look down on people who look down on people. Getting pretty close to home, I must confess. And I love the two questions that she raised up that she says she asked herself every day of her life and all the time through the day. And she said neither one of these questions has anything to do with someone else's sin. They have everything to do with her and her life. Gert, how are you doing with Jesus Christ? What a great question to ask. And in her words and actions, is this for God or is this for Gert? Great question to ask. What is one's motive? Why am I doing that? Is this for Mike or is this for God? So I'm going to assume that because we are all sitting here very properly on Sunday morning, that most all of us, if not all of us, and certainly including anybody dressed in a white robe and wearing a purple stole, that... uh, that we are akin with the elder brother personality and temperament. And we need to ask ourselves something like, do you want only Jesus to save you? No credit for yourself, not because of your efforts or your trying or because you're not as bad as others or however we try to rationalize that. Do you want only Jesus to save you? 
Do you want to be 100% indebted to Jesus for your repaired, redeemed life? That you I'm addressing to me too, to Michael. Do you want to live the Jesus way? Do you want to learn and grow this Lent, this 40 days before Easter? Do you yearn for transformation in your attitude towards others, which is a peculiar, particular elder son quirk? Then three things you can do now. First, accept this as a given, whether you can see it wholly or not, that there is a little or a lot of the elder brother in you and in me, in all of us sitting here this morning. Beware of what that can look like. Ungrateful for what we have. Self-righteous, loveless, smug, an air of superiority, pridefulness, arrogance, snobbery. Thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. Kind of attitude. Gert has another piece in this tape where she says she gets so tired of people coming up to her and saying, you're so wonderful. And she replies to them, and she dares anybody to say it to her in that particular gathering there. And she says, I am not wonderful. It's God who is wonderful. First, accept as a given. There's some of this in each one of us sitting here this morning. Second, look inward. Think about Jesus and his repeated teaching on this theme Think about, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, Jesus asked, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, your sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So self-criticism first, looking inward, focusing on our own heart, being self-critical for these 40 days, a particular season of inward awareness, evaluative about our behavior and our motives and our treatment of others, a wholesale reappraisal using the prodigal God uh, story as the uh, framework for this reappraisal, a reassessment of who I am, who you are, and how we are shaped, because uh, some of we can see that by how we look at others. That's why we heard in the reading from the second chapter of Romans this morning, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Your heart, our hearts are not right, you see. And that haunting challenge from that psalm this morning. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away from my groaning all day long. If we didn't read that, we should have. I'm not sure it was on the uh, psalm, but uh, that's part of that psalm. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, okay, I'm going to get right with God. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the psalmist says, and you forgave me, the prodigal God. 
So accept this as a given, some of this in all of us, this elder son behavior. Look inward during these 40 days. And thirdly, go the distance. Finish the race. We're just getting started here. Come and hear our teachings as we make offering uh, from the context of this book. And do your own careful reading of the prodigal God story, this marvelous book that we are enjoying. Do your own careful reading of that. And join one of the small groups or join the blog so that this can be discussed and worked out and massaged and examined for one another. Do those three things and you will have a great Lent. Accept the given, look inward, go the distance. And next week, more from Timothy Keller and more from us. Redefining sin. That danger we have of the self-righteousness that produces this fruit of taking credit from God and giving it to ourselves. God, you owe me. Look what I've done for you. It is an attitude which says, I've done it the old-fashioned way. I earned my place with God. I worked hard to get here. Next week, let's discover more what sin looks like in us, not others, if we have an elder brother heart. Amen.